Hello and welcome back to another Highlights episode of The Gold Podcast. I'm Helena Beer, the editor of Gold, and in this Gold Nuggets mini-series, I take a look back on some of the podcast's most popular guests over the last season. In today's episode, I'll be revisiting our interview with Rashima Kemps-Polanco, Executive Vice President and US Head of Novartis Oncology, in which she spoke about clinical trial recruitment, among lots of other interesting topics. So let's get started. Rashima Kemps-Polanco, one of Gold's previous Catalyst interviewees, is responsible for all commercial and medical operations in the US at Novartis Oncology. Starting out her career at Novartis, she spent 15 years in various positions, ultimately leading multiple marketing teams within oncology and general medicines. Spending six years at J&J, latterly as President Cardiovascular Metabolism and President of Janssen Pharmaceuticals Puerto Rico, she rejoined Novartis in her current role of Executive Vice President and US Head of Novartis Oncology in 2021. In this first clip, Rashima discusses some of the barriers that lie in the way of clinical trial recruitment, as well as putting forward some solutions for pharma to overcome them. Look, I think if we had the solutions, we would definitely be doing better. Well, the good news about the, the solution part of it is there are so many, again, just like the research part of it in terms of looking for cures and life extension, uh, there is huge momentum in the industry to uh, really uh, accelerate trial recruitment, get from bench to bedside more quickly with these assets and lead candidates, as well as to ensure diversity in clinical trials. And so um, health equity or health inequity is, is clearly a topic of discussion when you look at clinical trial recruitment. And um, I think, you know, look, when we look at what happened uh, during the pandemic with COVID, I think none of those uh, things were new in terms of health inequity. But I think because the world was on pause, the world was on standstill, we were able to see just the impact of that and people who suffer um, more so than others. There was a lot of suffering and it's hard to compare degrees of suffering, but the disproportionate suffering in certain um, ethnicities, racial groups, communities, parts of the world uh, was really uh, exposed, right? And so, you know, in terms of clinical trial recruitment, one of the things we're really committed to is diversity in clinical trials and being a part of the the solution there. Uh, And some of the the root causes of that is well-documented, right? Um, You know, lack of uh, education about clinical trials. Uh, Many times clinical trials are not offered to certain patients because there's a belief or a bias, right or wrong, that um, patients wouldn't participate or couldn't participate or wouldn't compliantly participate, Um, understanding, you know, having the cultural competence uh, to do so. And then also, you know, on the healthcare side, you know, COVID has really uh, impaired our healthcare system in terms of staffing. I think it's no uh, secret that many of our uh, hospitals and institutions are really um, having some staffing issues um, in terms of in shortages of staff. And so you have that, again, that um, intersection of we're still having talent and staffing issues in the healthcare space, um, you know, coming out of the pandemic, but also we need to really accelerate 
expansion of clinical trials um, in ensuring that more of them are placed in the community. And the reason that's important, Isabel, is because when you look at the vast amount of research that's happening, yes, we are still really focused as an industry on um, those metastatic stages of uh, cancer and, and uh, really life extension, but we also know that the earlier you can de screen, detect, and treat, we give patients, in many cases, best chance for cure and for longer survival. And that means a lot of those patients are found in the community setting, not necessarily in academic centers, not necessarily in, in NCI-designated cancer centers. And those community centers face a lot of these staffing issues as well, as well as the, you know, the, the gap in terms of how do you train these sites to be trial sites. And so there are a number of root causes and barriers there um, that come together that need to be solved. Bottom line is multifactorial, and it's going to take more than one entity to solve it. What is Novartis's part in all of this? Uh, we just launched an initiative we announced last year called the Beacon of Hope. Um, and this is with Novartis and the Novartis U.S. Foundation. We've joined forces with the Thurgood Marshall College Fund and the Morehouse School of Medicine and 26 other historically black colleges and universities um, and medical schools to address some of these root causes of disparities in health and education. Um, and we have this initiative, which includes a $20 million investment to help prepare up to 1,200 black and African-American students to become the next generation of leaders in health, science, and technology um, and, and business. And why is that important? Because many times um, these patients, what they tell us is, I want someone who looks like me, who understands my culture, who understands my background and understand that there may be additional burdens and barriers that are in place that are not necessarily true for other uh, or for non-diverse uh, uh, patients. Cultural representation among staff and researchers at clinical trials is so important to ensure that the real underlying causes for some conditions are recognised. And as Rashima mentioned there, the Beacon of Hope programme is a great initiative helping the best minds make their way into the industry to shape that change. Rashima has had an amazing career so far and is very passionate about ensuring and encouraging diversity in all its forms within the industry. As such, she has been recognised by the Healthcare Business Women's Association as a rising star, by the Network Journal as a top 40 under 40 achiever, and by Savoy Magazine as one of the most influential black executives in corporate America. In this next clip, she delves a little deeper into her career journey so far, detailing the positive influence a sponsor can have when uncovering new and hidden talent. Um, I think if I were to think about my own career, what was the linchpin of success for me? Sponsorship. The sponsorship I had along the way, and not one sponsor, but multiple sponsors along the way that allowed me to have opportunity to demonstrate my capability and my potential. And for those who do not have sponsorship, how many talented individuals are we leaving behind? And what a sponsor does, right? The sponsor can't do the work for you and they can't make you any more capable than you are. They can certainly be great mentors. They can certainly, um, you know, give you like um, opportunities and education and things like that. But the thing that they do, in my opinion, that really makes the difference 
is that they take their own access and their own spotlight and they take it and they turn it and they open it up and they shine it on the sponsees. And that gets other gets the attention of others that, oh, wait, there's a talent here. There's a spotlight being shined on them. Now let's see what they can do. And so it's important that that spotlight gets shined at the right time, right? Because you don't want to expose the talent before they're ready. But that's one of the things I've observed as a pattern is that they're able to direct attention to certain talents, uh, whereas in the organization can see, oh, wait, you know, this person, you know, has a lot of potential and capability and look what they can do. And all of a sudden that momentum starts to be uh, created. And it also boosts the confidence of that sponsee to really demonstrate what they can do. I think the other thing is access. Many times the sponsor has great networks, great access. And what I found that when the sponsor opens their own access to those talents, then that is a multiplying effect um, of, of the momentum as well. And so those are the two things, you know, that I would say. And we still know, I mean, there is an article I just posted recently on LinkedIn um, that just cited that just 5% of the up-and-coming Black employees succeed in winning sponsorship compared to 20% of white employees. Now, overall, none of these numbers are great, by the way. I think we have to get better overall, but you can see the gap, right? If you could just close the gap between the 5 and 20%, we could really see an increase in, in diverse uh, leadership throughout the ranks. Being able to secure sponsorships can be a pivotal step in raising through the ranks within the industry. Having a dedicated professional who is able to turn the spotlight toward you, as Rashima so aptly put it, can propel careers for sure. It's fair to say that there can be quite a few highs and lows when working within the pharma industry, especially in a complicated field such as oncology. In this next clip, Rashima discusses her philosophy when dealing with failure. I've, I've adopted Nelson Mandela's philosophy towards failure, and that is I never lose. I win or I learn. As long as I'm winning or I'm learning, it's okay. And that's really, if you think about the pharmaceutical industry, you are right. I mean, think about how many shots on goal you have to have to get a success. To work in this space, you have to be okay with iteration. I do not call it failure. Because from every failure, you have the second iteration and you improve upon it. At least you should be if you're a learner or if your organization is a learning organization. And what I think the opportunity is, right, is how do you accelerate the speed of learning? As people say, fail fast, iterate, go again, mm -hmm. right? And it gets you without those, without that sequence, it's very hard to get the success. It's very rare that we get it right the first time. Sometimes we do. Sometimes by planfulness and sometimes by accident. However, um, you have to be okay with an iterative process and knowing that either you're going to win or you're going to learn. You know, I think about um, a time, and I won't mention company or, 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 or product, but we were, uh, we were coming off of a really, really successful launch. And uh, I knew that the next launch would be difficult just because you were pioneering a new space it was a new specialty area. It was transformational. It was a paradigm shift. Paradigm shifts take time. But we were so used to, you know, transformational launches. You know, it's like just this, what I would call uh, 
bolus of demand. Um, and that, you know, recognizing, being able to recognize what's different and what's similar about business situations and what playbook are you going to need to, to, to gain success. And I, I found, even though I knew that it would be challenging, leading the people through that challenging time, and it wasn't, I mean, it was about maybe a 12 to 18 month period, but it felt like an eternity to the people because they were used to a certain type of trajectory. And I found that it did really pull on my leadership capability um, in terms of the energy that needs to be given, being able to paint the vision, being able to tell people to show shoots of green that it's happening, it's going to happen. And to when something is hard and it's going to take longer, how do you manage the stakeholders, right? How do you manage the pressure and how do you inspire the people when the dashboards are red? Right. But you know that underneath the ocean, it's changing. You have the insights, you know, it's going to happen and being true to your fundamentals. If you really identified these are the insights, these are the right levers and it's about executing them with precision, success will come. What are those leading indicators, shoots of green that we take now and say it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when and getting people to that point and then seeing them and stepping away and letting them see their own success. There's no better feeling, but I can tell you, someone can look at that and says, it feels, it felt like we were failing. Everything was red for the first several months, but we were not. We were learning, we were iterating, and success did come. Um, and this ended up being, uh, it's on a trajectory to be a very successful therapy because it is transformational for patients. I'm also of the opinion that everyone's perceived failures help them to succeed better. And that learning element Rashima mentioned is such an important thing to keep in mind. Be curious, learn from mistakes and understand that not getting things right the first time is no bad thing. And that is all for our final gold nuggets in this mini series. It's been a real treat to revisit some of my personal favorite episodes and share some of the best insights from our guests. I do hope you've enjoyed reminiscing with me. Do be sure to subscribe if you haven't already, as season four of The Gold Podcast will be landing next week. My co-host Isabel and I have got a whole host of guests lined up who are set to discuss some brilliant marketing and medical affairs topics with us across the season, so do keep an eye out. Until then, it's goodbye from me, and I'll see you next week for season four. Mm-hmm.